0: studios studios of of kpcw in park city this is cool science radio it's science and technology that's accessible and entertaining and if we can understand it so will you i'm lynn ware peak and i'm john wells this morning we speak first with local park city resident eric Garin, who joins us to talk about his book Poems of the Planets, Solar System Science in Verse and Prose. It turns young people onto the wonders of space.
1: And then from embalmers to executioners, an exploration of the people who have made death their life's work with science writer Haley Campbell. This whole death thing, Lynn, is actually a fun and interesting topic, and you won't want to miss this conversation. (laughs) That's
0: right. Well you know many of us can recall a time that we got turned on to space whether a shooting star streaked across the sky or we got to see a spaceship launched or perhaps we looked through a powerful telescope our next guest local Park City resident Eric Guerin wants all children to be turned on to space and the cosmos he has written a book for that purpose. It's called Poem of the Planets, and it contains wonderful graphics and explanations about the major solar system objects, but it's weaved uh, with poetry, poems, 20 poems about these objects of the solar system. We're about to hear why poems about the cosmos will cement our curiosity and our learning. Eric Garin, welcome to Cool Science Radio.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
0: (laughs) So how did this idea come up for writing poems? And they're great rhyming poems that really, as I say, cements learning. How did, how did you get there? Uh,
2: it was, it was uh, unplanned. Uh, I, I, when our kids were in elementary school, I uh, started writing kids' poems, mostly just humorous little poems. And uh, I put them away in a file and, and lost them. And years later, when our daughter... had grown up and was about to have a baby. We were back in Brooklyn to help her out and we we took an Airbnb for a couple of months and I was taking. I, wanted, I needed a bunch of files to take with me to keep things going and in the course of looking for those files, I accidentally came across these old poems. I thought, so I started looking through them and it turns out that I had an unfinished poem about the solar system. So I took it with me and, and while I was there I kind of worked on that and I got that one poem, the overview of the solar system, and I thought maybe it would be fun to write a poem about each of the planets and then that led to the moons and the asteroids and so forth so it just uh it just seemed like these things might be interesting to kids and i wasn't thinking about doing it as a book but eventually that's what took took shape so they're not only poems
0: they're wonderful graphics photographs some of which you got from nasa and some of which you took yourself in your own hometown observatory which we must hear about
2: okay well when, when we moved here in 2001 uh, at least part-time uh the skies were just incredibly dark much darker than they are now unfortunately yes but um, uh, I, I i and i had loved looking up at, at objects when i was a kid uh and and uh so, we got a little six inch telescope, and I would haul that out on dark nights and and i'd set it up and it took like forty five minutes to an hour to get it all organized and By then, I was freezing and then people would come out and look through the telescope and eventually i said i've i've got to build an observatory and and so, in twenty fifteen we added the the observatory to the house and and uh it started out it was going to be a twelve inch telescope uh and then <laughs> I realized, well, the dome will fit a larger one, 14, and then I kept looking at this 20-inch diameter telescope, and uh, I talked with this consultant I was using, and he said, yeah, yeah, we can fit that in there. So we did, and the next thing I know, I've got this monster telescope.
1: (laughs) (laughs) If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we are speaking with local Park City resident Eric Garin. He has written Poems of the Planets, Solar System, Science, in verse and prose. Eric, this book is uh, beautifully illustrated. Uh, it's, it's not just for little kids, it's it's for big kids too. I know a lot about the solar system and the sun, but I've learned a lot just taking a look at your book. And uh, the one thing that, that always grabs me is is how little kids react when they look up into the sky. And in your section on Mars, you talk about how the Spirit and the Opportunity Rovers were named. By nine-year-old third-grade student Sophie Collis, who was an orphan in Siberia and then adopted by her American parents, and when she was in uh, Siberia, she she uh, didn't have light. She she didn't. I'm I'm not exactly sure what the situation was, but she lived in a in a. She had a tough existence, and the thing that used to. Keep her going was looking up into the sky and looking at the various planets and the stars, and and I just think that's fascinating yeah. how kids react to, uh, to all of this. Yep. What,
2: what are your thoughts on that? Well, I I I just know how I reacted, and how my kids reacted is you look up and and it's just there's something that you can actually look at, especially looking through a telescope, get a sense of awe, and you you just have a Feeling for the immensity of the universe as as well as the complexity of it and the diversity of it and and I think that you know you can do that with the naked eye uh, but once you start looking in a telescope and you look at images that were produced through telescopes it gets even more dramatic and 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 the, the difference between all the objects in our our own solar system, and how dramatically different they are, even though they more or less formed in in from the same ball of dust and gas, is is remarkable. And so I think that that story of of what's unique about each of these objects uh, is is really uh, captures the imagination of of, as you say, kids of of all ages.
1: And as you prepared this book, what most surprised you about our solar system as you as you prepared for this?
2: I I think it was a, as I would study each object. It was it was what what was unique. I mean, from from Titan, uh, a moon of Saturn, that has. Uh, you know, methane, uh, it, it, it rains methane, liquid methane on, on Saturn, and which forms rivers of methane and lakes of methane and seas of methane, to uh, Europa, which is a moon of, of Jupiter that has an outer ice shell over an ocean, a saltwater ocean, and, and so the outer ice shell is completely disconnected from the inner rocky core. But the rocky core is, is changed around by gravity uh, as it goes around Jupiter so that it, it uh, heats up. And, and you have undersea volcanoes and hydrothermal vents where you could potentially have life under, under the sea. And you go then to Mars that used to have oceans, but they're all ended a, a much thicker atmosphere and they're, it, they're gone. Uh, but it's possible that there was life and that with our rovers, we're going to find uh, evidence that it used to be there.
0: Eric, one of the things that's so curious about you is the fact that you are curious. You come from this background. You have an undergraduate degree in engineering and a graduate degree in, I think, computer science. Yeah. You, The the bulk of your career was you were a co-founder of Learning International, which trained IT uh, staff and managers all around the globe, two and a half million people up to this point. It was a, a career you spent about 30 years in before retiring. Yeah. At you, in Park City, you helped start Bright Futures program, which most everyone here knows about Bright Futures program. And it was modeled after a program that you um, that you helped run in California. So... Yeah. Where to, where to start with your background? What most fascinates you about everything that you have done?
2: Uh, that, that's a really difficult question to answer because it tends to be whatever I'm doing recently. Exactly. <laughs> <You right. know? laughs> and, and, and I don't know what it is. I, just, I, I am, as you say, a very curious person, and I, I, I just enjoy learning. Uh, as as I go and you know when we started the business in in of of learning tree international it just um, I didn't know anything about business I mean I had no business acumen it took about, almost a year before we realized you have to sell stuff for more than it costs you in order to stay in business <laughs> I'm not exaggerating and 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 this thing grew and 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 so you learn along the way about people management and and uh, about marketing and things like that and and then I got very interested in trying to help uh, uh, people who, who had lower incomes you know, basically dig themselves out of poverty by helping uh, young people who have the, the uh, capability and determination get to and through college. In, in this country, the statistic is that only 11% of low income first generation to college students who start college get a bachelor's degree within 6 years only 11% so the program we started in LA called bright prospect and then brought here as bright futures is graduating close to 90% and and it just makes a humongous difference in the lives of those individuals so i'd say of of all the things i've done uh, the the thing that that grabs me the most is is that activity.
0: Hmm. That's so nice to hear. It's a wonderful program, and it makes me think that overall, your goal is trying to really create learning opportunity opportunities for young people, but also to get them excited about learning. Yeah. And that's where I think this. This book, which is so unique, having poems to talk about the cosmos, is a way of looking, I think they call it across the curriculum. So you're looking yeah. at different areas of study yeah. to teach, maybe have the goal of teaching one thing. Right. Can you talk a little bit about this teaching across the curriculum? Well, oh,
2: I, I... I I've always been concerned that, that science, once you get past about the eighth grade, is taught in silos. You're learning biology, you're learning chemistry, you're learning physics. And yet all of these are tremendously interrelated, and all of them relate to the study of our solar system. And so when I was writing these poems, I, I really tried to interweave basic concepts and to explain basic concepts in physics, chemistry, biology, oceanography, geology, as well as some through in some history, mythology, uh, and geography. So all of those are interwoven because knowledge is, it is interwoven and, and to think about each subject its, its own subject makes no sense in my, in, in my view.
1: Just a heads up for Cool Science Radio listeners, next Tuesday, November 8th, there will be a coast to coast across the country total lunar eclipse. It'll be visible to all of us. And if you are in Park City, in that area and mountain time zone, the uh, totality begins at 3.17 a.m. If you're here on the east coast, it begins at 5.17 a.m. Eric, will you be watching the lunar eclipse?
2: Uh, possibly. (laughs) I've watched a lot of lunar eclipses. And, and so this one being at at 317 a.m. is, I'm less likely to get up for it. Uh, also on the good side, we're getting a lot of snow and I think we may be getting it, uh, next Tuesday as well. But, uh, I, there's a good chance that I'll at least peek out the window and have a look at it. It's it's a a total lunar eclipse is very cool, but what's even cooler is a solar eclipse. And we definitely flew up to uh, Wyoming to look at that one back in 2017. And it was the first total solar eclipse I've ever experienced. And uh, I will be looking at the next one in 2024 when it comes across Mexico and, and the United States. And I would encourage everybody to do that once in their life.
1: Yeah. yeah, so start thinking about that now. And the next lunar eclipse will not be until 2025. So Somewhere. I'm going to get up and check it out and see what's going on. Uh, yeah. uh, no, the uh, the next Sol- lunar eclipse will be 2025. Um, oh, uh, a year after the solar eclipse. Oh. Uh, Eric, what's your favorite planet?
2: <sighs> Earth. We live here. <laughs> but if if you were to say other than Earth, what's my favorite planet? I would have to say uh, Mars because it's so tantalizingly close, relatively close to us, and has the possibility of supporting uh, a, a human, uh, human life in, inside domes or some other structure. Uh, and and, and it, that to me is just fascinating. Yeah.
0: Well, speaking of Mars... Uh, Let me just read a couple of of stanzas or whatever you call them of this poem. The Romans had a god named Mars. He was their god of war. At planet four, they named for him planet four they named for him here next we will explore this reddish neighbor mimics earth it has a dusky skin and polar caps and mountain peaks and air that's very thin and it goes on like this but i wanted to give our listeners a little glimpse into these poems they're wonderful poems and you have a favorite poem in this book or one that you were there perhaps going to going
2: yeah. to read for us would you be interested i certainly okay. would uh, the the uh, I, the one that captivates me is the the one about it's short about the oceans of europa another moon of jupiter like io it is not europa is a frozen world ice covers every spot like io poor europa's core is warmed to such degree it melts the ice adjoining it which forms a hidden sea. Below Europa's ice fields lies an ocean without foam. With Europa's central heating, life could make this place a home. Life here could get its energy, not from the sun's dim light, but hydrothermal vents that spew into the ocean night. This life might be like giant worms or mushy jelly rings or creatures with bright lights and fangs that eat the other things we do not know what might exist below europa's icing but with a probe we might find out and that could be surprising mm, i love it <laughs> <laughs> and the, the, oh that's great the the the, that the, is. the the thing about giant worms and jelly rings and fish that have those are all in our deep ocean around hydrothermal vents that are two miles below the surface where that life does not get its energy from the sun as everything on the surface does or on the top of the ocean does, but uh, gets its its life, it, its energy from chemicals that are spewing out of these hydrothermal vents that are digested by bacteria, and then those bacteria are eaten by other creatures, and eventually you end up with these eight foot long six inch diameter worms that make their own tubes to, as for shelter. And, and it's, it's just remarkable that, that life exists in that kind of an alien environment. And that's a very, very similar environment. Definitely exists under the ice in the oceans of Europa. So mm-hmm. that's a, if, if you look at the entire universe and say, where is life probable? That's probably high on the list. Yeah, and
1: also high on the list is enceladus where we sent a probe down to sniff the geysers and we're kind of thinking the same thing so it's it's pretty exciting eric it is
2: it is and and so the the, and, and and these probes that are going out now it's 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 so much cheaper than manned exploration uh, and and the, the cost of sending these is, keeps coming down and coming down, and, and we're able to send more and more. And, and now it's not just the U.S. and Russia, but you know, dozens of countries are, are sending up probes that, that are exploring the, the solar system, and, and we're learning more and more every day. Yeah, did you get caught up in this whole
1: Pluto thing? Is it a planet? Is it not a planet? It was—it was tough for me to get past that, but uh, I'm doing okay now.
2: Yeah, it—it is—it is was a shock, and and the the fellow that that created that that storm, Mike Brown, is at Caltech, and I know him well, and uh, uh-huh. he discovered what originally was hailed as the tenth planet, uh, a larger, slightly larger than body than pluto in that same neighborhood which is called the kuiper belt and yes and then they started discovering more and that caused astronomers to say wait a minute if we're not careful how do we tell what's the difference between a planet and an asteroid and and they came up with three rules which are the focus of of that poem about that and and you know look it's it's just a matter of semantics and and there are people that want to argue that pluto is a planet and, and they're But uh, I think the definition is pretty clearly uh, defined at this point.
1: (laughs) Well, Pluto got two out of the three, right? That's right. (laughs) It's a two-thirds planet.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Speaking Let's- of of asteroids, I'm wondering: Were you able with your observatory to witness the collision with the asteroid of the Dart?
2: No, no, no. no. That, that I mean, it's only that was the the asteroid that it actually hit is only about 500 feet in diameter, and so you're not going to see anything that size with um, with my telescope. That's for sure. But I sure did watch the video of it, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah,
1: absolutely. yeah, we started about two years ago looking at, uh, uh, you know, the DART mission and the fact that it was able to track this thing, track it down 8 million miles away yeah. uh, without the help of Bruce Willis <laughs> and be able to. Uh, not only hit it in a bullseye, but it actually affected its uh, its position, yeah. as, as they've now learned. So it's pretty exciting.
2: It is. It was very exciting. And, and you know, at first I was thinking, well, wait a minute. You know the mass of the, the space probe, which is about the size of a refrigerator, and you know the mass of the uh, asteroid because you know its size and you know its orbit around, it was orbiting a larger asteroid and so i thought well you ought to be able to predict pretty well but then i realized their asteroids have all sorts of different surfaces some are just like solid rock and others are just loose piles of rubble and and literally if it was if it was that kind of an asteroid when the ran into it, it would just get absorbed like going into a sponge. And so that, that was one of the key reasons to do it uh, at this object, was to really get a feeling of how much uh, the, the collision was going to actually, the, how much of that energy would, would be transformed into changing the motion of, of the asteroid. And, and it was incredibly successful.
0: Eric, I'm wondering as I'm holding your beautiful book here in my hands, Poems of the Planet, um, how much there's this thing about learning that we all remember words of songs. Songs that we learned when we were four years old, we can still recall them. Ways of remembering things. I will never forget. I don't know if anyone out there learned the prepositions in eighth grade to the tune of Yankee Doodle Dandy. I can still, and I won't sing for you, but I know anytime I wonder, is something a preposition? I just access the song Mm -hmm. and I'll never forget it. And I'm wondering if in some way, because it's so hard really to remember numbers and, and statistics and things like that, especially about the, you know, what's going on in space and the size of, say, the sun, for example, if writing poems somehow was a goal of yours to help cement that learning.
2: Um In some ways it was, because I just thought, I I know that there are kids who say, especially in middle school, and this is primarily was aimed at middle school kids. There's a lot of research shows that that elementary school kids are universally curious and want to know about science. Mm -hmm. But when they get to middle school, especially girls, and I can't tell you why, but that is when the interest in science tends to wane. And I thought, okay, maybe this is a way to uh either respark or maintain that interest uh is by by presenting it in a very very different way
0: yes and while i read that your book is sort of focused at the 9 to 14 years of age group. Right, I feel like reading this to a 5-year-old is just because of the rhythm and the rhyming and how fun and playful it is. Like this, 2 billion, billion, billion tons. Sun weighs much more than cheese. Its center
2: reaches temperatures of 30 million degrees. Yeah. That's fun. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and, and, and I, I have read these to to young kids you know our, and and our grandkids and their cousins and friends and and they do respond well at, at the age of six so you're right Lynn can you read one one of those poems in French
0: <laughs> I don't think it would rhyme and no I couldn't do that anyway
1: <laughs> okay all right just checking
0: <laughs> just checking yeah. yes
1: what's your next project Eric
2: um, well, I've got. I uh, six years ago, at the age of 69, I decided I. I if I was ever going to fly, I'd always wanted to fly. I and I. I took up flying, so I became a pilot at the age of 69, and and then kept learning and and became a multi-engine pilot, and I got a pilot a, a certificate to fly a jet. And now I realized, wait a minute, I've 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 missed a, a, a crucial step. I. Uh, there's a the old style planes with tail wheels are much more difficult to to fly, especially the landing part of it, and 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 you really learn better stick and rudder uh, uh, skills. So I'm 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 going back and and doing that. That that's my next that that's my current next project is learning to fly tail draggers.
0: That's so great. I think you're the the youngest. 75-year-old person I've ever seen, Eric. There must be something really, really good and therapeutic about the way you live your life. Uh, It's
2: constant curiosity. I suspect it is. (laughs) It's also, there's a a brand of denim that I think actually explains that it's lucky jeans.
0: Ah. (laughs) There you go. Well, the book is Poems of the Planets, Solar System Science in Verse and Prose We are so excited that you could join us today on Cool Science Radio. And I I have to ask, do all your neighbors come around and want to look through that telescope?
2: Yep, absolutely.
0: (laughs) Well, technically, I'm your neighbor because I don't have... I'll be happy to have you. Okay. (laughs) Uh, For sure, John and I would love to come and peer through that telescope. Let's do that. Okay. Thanks for joining us.
1: Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm John Wells. I'm here with Lynn Ware Peak. We welcome our next guest, author and journalist, Haley Campbell, who from a young age has been curious about death. Mostly why we don't discuss it, why society reacts to death and corpses the way it does, and, and who the people are that make the dead part of their day-to-day routine. Her new book, all the living and the dead from embalmers to executioners and exploration people who have made death, their life's work. Haley Campbell, welcome to cool science radio.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: Uh, Enjoyed the book. Also enjoy your sense of humor. Um, Maybe, maybe you can start with uh, telling us your fascination with death, how that started.
3: Uh, Well, I sort of blame my dad on page one. I mean, he's not hes not around to, <laughs> he is around. hes He hasn't died, but uh, it's my book, so I can. Um, he is a comic book artist and um, I grew up uh, between the ages of three and 13. He was working on a book um, called From Hell, w- which was written by Alan Moore. And mm-hmm. um, it's about the Jack the Ripper murders. So I was, between three and 13, I think that's, Pretty much when you're formulating a lot of uh, you know formative experiences and opinions, and um, so around that time, my house was just full of pictures of these dead ladies, and they were autopsy pictures and crime scene photographs and um and I didn't think it was strange. I just wanted to know what was happening in the pictures. And uh, I thought it was so unstrange that I thought everyone's dad was doing this. And it was only (laughs) when I went to other people's houses that I was like, where is your dad? He wasn't even there. He was, you know, at work. Um, and, And I copied him. You know, I did my own versions of horrific pictures, which my dad would show off to horrified guests, but he was sort of a proud Gomez Adams about it. But I think I was just a kid who had a lot of questions about death that weren't answered um, in any way that I found satisfactory. I went to a Catholic school. So when I asked about death, I was told about heaven. But really, I wanted to know the practical stuff about what happens to a body when you put it in the ground. And all the stuff about Jesus rising from the dead around easter just added to the confusion and uh, <laughs> i wanted to know the practicalities of how that worked um but i i've been told i was a strange kid but really i think i was just a kid who had a lot of questions and i think that's most kids mine were just very focused yeah
1: well haley i think everybody uh, can remember the first time they saw a dead body and you know Many of many of those remembrances have to do with uncles or grandparents and and those sorts of things. Um, yours is probably different. <laughs> mm-hmm. Outside of a dead philosopher's uh, decapitated head, <laughs> uh, which we won't count because he was already dead a whole bunch of years, the first dead person that you saw you worked on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, let's let's talk about that a little bit
3: well in the uk we don't have open coffins so you say that people might have seen an uncle or an aunt or something but really if you speak to most english people they haven't seen a dead body Mm. um you know someone might have died in a hospital and they heard about it but then the body is taken away and then the next thing you know they're in a closed coffin at the funeral and you don't see them um so i've had lots of people die in my life and yet never saw a dead body and so um, the first dead body I saw was when I went to interview a funeral director called Poppy Mardle and she had given a, a speech that had really hit me because she said that the first dead body you see should not be someone you love and that everybody should be given the chance to separate the shock of seeing death for the first time from the shock of grief and loss and I really believe her. And she said that um, she wished that she could bring children into her mortuary to, to show them death before something horrific happens and they are suddenly thrown into it. Um, so I really wonder if how different I would have grown up if I had met her when I had all of those questions originally. But uh, anyway, I met her in my early 30s and she invited me to come and work in her mortuary for a day Um, dressing dead people for their coffins so the first dead person I saw was a man called Adam and I just dressed him for his coffin I was being treated like I was being trained to work there so um, the mortuary manager was there and he was directing me telling me what to do and I found it the most profound experience I've ever been through I'm not a religious person but it was close to a religious experience and um and now when friends have family die i say that you know i had this experience with a complete stranger i i did it all with a lump in my throat and now i am adamant that i want to be there for my own family because this this is a transformative moment not not even in the sense that you know it's not just seeing a dead body to me it's it's the last thing you can do to care for someone you love before they are taken away from you it's like doing up a kid's shoelaces at the school gate before they go on their way and we just because we don't really think about it we just give that over to strangers to do and I think it's a waste of something that could be very very
0: special if you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we're having a conversation with Haley Campbell. She's an author, a journalist, and she has written a new book called All the Living and the Dead, From Embalmers to Executioners, an exploration of the people who have made death their life's work. Well, since you brought up Poppy, um, the... the uh, Oh, she's not a mortician. She's, she's a, a
3: funeral a, director. <laughs>
0: funeral director. Of, a big difference, as I, as we're about to learn. Um, I, I'm curious about the people who make death their lives work. You know, what was it? Did did Poppy have the same kind of curiosity that you did as a child and follow that curiosity? Or how did she stumble into it? She stumbled
3: into it, not because of the same curiosity that I had, but... Um, but she was in her twenties when both of her parents were diagnosed with cancer. And so she suddenly had to, you know, she said until the point she was 27, she had never considered in any real sense, the fact that both of her parents would die. And suddenly she had to. Um, So she was, you know, looking at various funeral homes and funeral options. and, And she thought none of these speak to me, all my parents, they're just you know, very formal, very Victorian and, and this is not. So she identified a problem when she was looking for funerals. And then she got typhoid when she was traveling and she nearly died herself. And um, she was frightened. And she said that not only did she have to confront death with her parents, but with herself and she likened it to, you know, if she was nine months pregnant and she was about to give birth and she'd never seen a baby before, she said that whole experience would be so much more frightening um, if she didn't know the realities, if she'd never seen it. And so when she got better, she decided that she wanted to quit her job, which was at an auction house, which she thought was kind of soulless. And she wanted to do something on the front line of human emotion and life. She wanted to either be there at the beginning of life or marriages or death and she didn't really care which one and it was just her experience coming up against death that made her choose this one I think because she realized that there was a problem that she could fix or you know try and help other families through. And I think it's I think it's really noble. And she said when she was training very early on she was shadowing another funeral director and she stood in um, a funeral home's cool room for the first time. And she saw dead bodies for the first time. And she was just struck by how normal it all seemed and how, you know, dead bodies are kind of an anti-climax. You build them up to be a horror, but really they're just they're just dead bodies and they're kind of sad. And it struck her that she was angry that this had been you know, this chance hadn't been given to her. And she had to deal with the idea of death without ever seeing the reality of it. And the reality, as I have found in my book, is so much less frightening than we think it is.
0: That's so interesting. So much less frightening than you think it is. And so in your experience, going through the stories and interviews with 12 different people who have some relationship to death in their everyday life. How has it how has it changed your whole perception of death? Because to begin with, even as a young girl, you were not scared by the macabre, you know, drawings of <laughs> of horrific death and, and destruction and whereas your friends were. And I'm I'm just wondering if it you know how it has changed or shaped your view of death.
3: Well, I've never been afraid of death and I'm still not afraid of death.
0: Um, I'm not
3: afraid of being dead. I don't fancy the idea of dying. Dying, I think, is frightening. Dying slowly or painfully is a horrible thing that I don't I don't think you can sugarcoat that one. But I'm not afraid of death. And speaking to all of these people, I think the, the overwhelming sense that I've come away from it is I, I'm now more conscious of time and the fact that... We all get a lifetime, but no one says how long that's going to be. Because in the process of this book, I've seen tiny babies who got two minutes and I've seen the body of an old lady who was 105 years old. And so a lifetime is just this, you know, you don't know how long it's going to be. So I'm I'm now a lot more conscious of time and I have zero patience for arguing with people on the internet. (laughs)
1: That's that's about it. (laughs) I have a friend who uses the acronym QTR quality time remaining. We don't know how much time we have left, but he's cognizant of it every morning when he wakes up and he continues to remind himself that he needs to do things that enrich him and that help other people and those sorts of things. And, and I think it's an interesting acronym. It's, it's, uh, it certainly works for him. Uh, Back to the funeral director, a couple of things. One is they're unregulated in the UK and and maybe we regulate everything in the United States, but, you know, I could see if it wasn't regulated, you know, the guy down the street that, that, you know, just got laid off. So "Ah, I'll be a funeral director. So, So you have to be careful of that, but, but there's no regulation. Anybody can be a funeral director
3: yeah and because of that you get sort of hippie ladies with flowers in their hair calling themselves funeral directors but you, you mm-hmm. get the very serious funeral directors now it's becoming more regulated in how much stuff costs which i think is good because right. the rising costs of everything and you know jessica mitford wrote an amazing book called the american way of death which was all about the the money in the death industry oh, boy. um which is you know it's a frightening thing Th- death is incredibly incredibly expensive yeah unregulated but um because they are unregulated um Mm. that's why i was able to go backstage as it as it were um uh i there are parts of this book that i couldn't have done in america just because uh you know they don't really invite journalists backstage to see things like that and they don't hear either i had to go through so many levels of character reference and begging because they are wary of journalists and tabloids and the media in the uk is a frightening thing um and many in the death industry have been presented as ghouls and and all sorts of <laughs> So uh, i really had to prove myself to these people
1: sure Sure. I understand. Well, just a final thought on funeral directors. Uh, I traveled extensively for my career in technology and I, you know, one night around 11 o'clock, I um, got my rental car and you know, just landed and I went into this hotel. Uh, it was a large hotel and they were having a conference of undertakers and i was checking into the hotel and the bar i mean <laughs> they were having so much fun and I, I said to the clerk i said who's in there and they said oh it's just undertakers I said, oh man i will tell you what i'm i'm gonna put my bag up in my room and i'm gonna go down there and have a beer and see what's going on and they were the most fun people that i had bumped into in a long time but, That's you know. correct.
3: I've been in the pub with many, many undertakers. I've been at funeral conventions and the bar is always really fun. Uh, it's like they confront the worst thing that can happen and they've made some kind of peace with it and now they just like to go to the pub and have some fun. Whereas I have And live. Whereas I have been in, you know, private members' bars in London with lots of neurotic actors who are all concerned about their ego and their appearance and that is a crushing, horrible experience. That is no fun. You think, you know, Holly, Hollywood stars are exciting. They're really not. They're not as much fun as hanging out with undertakers. I in agree. The convention bar.
0: <laughs> Haley, you know, in in the beginning, you said something about how while you're not a religious person, you had almost a religious experience the first time that you saw a, a a dead body. And and it's funny. I wonder if you call it a dead body or a dead person. You know, what what has it become for you? Is it is it still a person? Is it just a body?
3: it's both i really like the fact that um and i really i really tried throughout my book not to use any euphemisms that might make people feel like i was trying to make it fluffy and nice um because i think in euphemisms you kind of give people the space to fill it with horrors and and that is um kind of the problem i had when when i was 13 and my friend drowned and I went to her funeral and I was just sitting there with her white coffin in front of me. And the fact that I couldn't see her dead body um, or know exactly what was going on oh. in there uh, meant that I had this big blank space and my head was just filling it with all the horrors that I had learned from TV shows and horror movies. And and I'm pretty sure if I had just been shown my friend who was a dead body and a dead person, um it would have been a completely different experience. I would have been able to move on with being sad and grieving because I would have been shown all the stuff that was preoccupying my mind. So that w- that's kind of like an origin story of that everything could have changed at that
0: point, and it didn't. Well, speaking of religion, I don't know how familiar you are with Utah, where, where we <laughs> are located, and predominant religion, the... Uh, Mormon religion or LDS religion. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not, I've grown up in Mormon country. I'm, I'm not Mormon. But one of the things I've always observed is when someone passes away, no matter how old they are, they have such a strong belief in, you know, where that person is, go- is now going that that they seem to have peace um, or acceptance, or something like that, that I've always envied, and and it makes me wonder. Then around the world, you know, as as the world really is in a lot of ways becoming more secular, how how do we make peace? And 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 who are all the you know all these religions or even cultures that believe that death? There's almost reason, well, not to celebrate, but to honor it in a different way than we do.
3: Um, I too envy the people who believed in heaven. Growing up around Catholics, it just seemed I was like I envied the idea that they had it sorted. There are lots and lots of religions around the world, and lots and lots of death festivals and and different things that people do with dead bodies. And you know, there's even a, a culture, a, a village in Indonesia that keep the bodies in the house until they can afford a funeral and a burial, and then they dress the bodies up and they bury them. And then a year later, they take them out and they dress them again in new clothes and they light their cigarettes and they give them toys and presents and things. And that sounds shocking to us. And, you know, I'm not saying that we should ever do that uh, here or in America. I think if we suggested it, there would be riots. But something I really want people to consider in, in my book is that we're always told in, in general society, how to grieve and how to think. And um, I just wanted to present ideas and, and the truth and give you a chance to figure it out on your own. Because I think death is so subjective that I, I personally couldn't take a religious book off the shelf and go, that's what I believe now. But um, I think grief is personal. And I'm seeing that a lot. You know, the Queen of England died yesterday. And um, we're seeing all of this... It prescribed it's this public grief and um people are reacting to it in all different ways and um some you know i'm a i'm a republican not in the american sense but in the sense that i don't believe we should have a monarchy but um i can see that it's a huge moving experience for a lot of people and not all of that is to do with the queen they're reminded of previous deaths but i'm seeing the the problems that arise when it, just in you know normal everyday family deaths, people arguing with each other about how they should feel and how they should grieve and how they should be behaving. If you look at Twitter, it's, you know, it's a dumpster fire of people telling other people you're not being as reverential as you should be right now and you should be somber. And other people are saying, but humor is how I grieve. How, you know, when my dad died, humor was the thing that saved us. So it's seeing like... Everything that happens in a normal family funeral is being blown up to worldwide proportions right now because, because a monarch has died. And I'm finding that just in a scientific sense, very interesting to watch. No one has it sorted out, but people are, people are trying and they're scrambling for something. Tradition and ritual gives you something if you're a certain kind of person, but if you're not, you kind of float around.
1: If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we are speaking with Haley Campbell. She has written all the living and the dead, from embalmers to executioners, an exploration of people who have made death their life's work. In the movie Pulp Fiction, Harvey Keitel, the actor, played a character, and he was a fixer. And it was, I, I was watching him in action, and I was saying, "Man, that's a that's an interesting job." If somebody was killed and there was a bloody mess. He was the guy that was sent in to fix it. And then taking a peek at your book, reading your book, there are professional crime scene cleaners that, well, Harvey Keitel worked uh, sort of for the underworld, but these are people that work for police departments and and emergency response folks. Um, can you tell us about this type of person and the the range of jobs that they perform?
3: Yeah, I interviewed Neil Smither, who runs the company Crime Scene Cleaners, Inc. in the Richmond area of San Francisco. And um, he was he was a kind of strange outlier in all of the death workers that I spoke to in the sense that he only got into this for money. Everybody else had some sort of, Greater ideal that they were working towards, or they felt like they could help the families. But Neil got into it because he was watching Pulp Fiction one day uh, in the nineties when he was in <laughs> when he was high and in his twenties. And while everyone else who saw Pulp Fiction in the nineties went off and thought, "I'm going to be the next Quentin Tarantino and I'm going to write a film script," he decided to start a business based on Harvey Keitel's business and. I'm not sure that's the correct way to choose a career, but anyway, he did it and it's hugely successful. And he cleans up after murders, suicides. If a body, if somebody has died in their house and gone undiscovered for weeks or months and decomposed, um, he cleans up after hoarders, he cleans up after rat infestations. He really sees the absolute, worst of humans. Um, I thought that came across in his attitude towards us. He said, there's no such thing as loyalty. And um, when, you know, coming from the UK, I I got into a conversation about gun control with him. And he said, you know, gun control would fix nothing because humans would just pick up the closest knife. And um, he has positioned himself in a part of the city where everyone lives very close. And he said that, for him, that's a money-making machine because tensions rise in proximity. It sounded like a very stressful job, but he, yeah, he yeah. really liked it. And he um, was very clean. While I was, We met in a diner and he kept asking for more napkins to mop up invisible things. So he, he just sees mess everywhere.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I don't know if other people uh, feel this way, but uh, anytime that there's a horrific uh, plane accident, I, I, I've I always wondered who, who gets involved in, in, in going through all that. And uh, you have this great chapter about a full service disaster recovery company called Kenyon they're the people that go in from the very start to um, all the way through contacting family members and arranging for funeral details i mean they it, it's i mean they do everything can really can do. you can you talk about that service
3: so they the reason that i hadn't known about the company kenyan is cuz they're a white label company and they take on the name of the company for whoever they're working for so if um american airlines had um a plane crash they would be american airlines and they would set up the phone service that you know families could phone and um the the company itself is made up of lots of people who come from other places there's lots of old detectives there there's old firemen there's you know um people who have had very practical useful jobs there's even people who like crisis management specialists who were there during the the banking crisis you know crises of all kinds um they deal with and um they basically fly in and they find the bodies and they identify the bodies and they bring them back to their families
0: And that was Haley Campbell, All the Living and the Dead. You can hear the interview in its entirety at kpcw.org under the Shows tab and Cool Science Radio. Thanks for tuning in to Cool Science Radio here on KPCW Park City. Thanks to Eric Guerin, our local guest, Poems of the Planets. We wanted to make sure we mentioned that you can purchase that book at either Dolly's or J.W. Allen & Sons, the toy store out at Kimball Junction.